Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is episode 5. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran Taurus, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce, ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. On this episode, I'm super excited to introduce y'all to Saida, who's a Tucson activist fighting to make the city officially a sanctuary city, and more than that, offering even more robust protections than we've seen in other sanctuary city movements. I hope y'all enjoy the interview, and I wanted to shout out Jorge Aceves, who is Radio Cachimbona's newest Patreon. Again, if y'all appreciate what I'm doing and want to support, please go to radiocachimbona.com where you can see more info about how to donate via the Patreon. Y'all can also Venmo at cachimbona underscore pod if you don't like the monthly subscriptions. Y'all can also Venmo at cachimbona underscore pod if you don't like the monthly subscriptions. And please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Finally, if y'all want to show your appreciation but maybe don't have the funds right now and a way to help me out for free that i really really appreciate is to leave a review on apple podcasts please rate and review five stars and share your thoughts bye y'all hope you enjoy It's just north of Mexico City. Mm-hmm. It's very different than Sonora, which is a lot of what the Southwest is. Mm-hmm. It's a Sonoran, more northern culture of Mexico, which mm-hmm. is not at all the way that it is in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family is... It's an interesting family because we're from Querétaro. Well, my tata and his entire side of the family, they're indigenous from Puebla. Like Most oh, okay. of them don't even speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, my nana, though, my mom's mother, on the other hand, is from Sonora. Okay. And she's um, the quintessential Sonoran nana. <laughs> Querétaro is is it's a much different place. And then you can also imagine living in Querétaro and just having really a, a pretty good life as children when we were there, and then moving here and being in this desolate desert and I hated it and it was <laughs> hot and we were poor as dirt, and we were undocumented, and we didn't understand English, so it was terrifying. It was, uh, it was traumatic. Mm-hmm. It, it was traumatic in a lot of ways. Um, when my mother, when we finally got on this side of the border, my mother was here for just a bit and actually had to go back to Mexico. I've never been clear as to why. I think it was because she couldn't find a job, okay. so she left us. She left my brother and I here with her sister, my tia, who, like many Mexican families, my tia, unlike my mother, had been born in L.A. Okay. Because my nana traveled a lot when she was younger. So she was bringing us to reunify with her sister, and she left us with my tia, who was at the time in her early 20s, had a child, had just widowed, Oh, no. um, worked all the time to care for us. Um, so that was also a very interesting and drastically different experience. You know, we had to pretend that she was our mother so she mm. could keep us oh, wow. uh, registered in school. And um, and we were alone most of the time because she worked so much. So mm-hmm. it was very different. Did you understand what it meant to be undocumented at that time? No, um, except that you weren't supposed to be seen by La Migra, you weren't supposed to ever come in contact with police, you were not supposed to speak to strangers, you're supposed to go home, I was supposed to lie to my teachers about who my mother was. So you don't understand what that means except that you're in trouble, mm-hmm. right? And when we were going through that, we lived off of uh, Valencia and Cardinal, like pretty southwest, mm-hmm. um, and it's desolate out there. I mean, now it's more so, but before, back in those days, in the early 90s, it was very different, and so you can imagine that border patrols are on those areas all the time, mm-hmm. and we were at Warren Elementary School, so we walked to the apartments that we lived in. Uh, I'd say it was probably about a mile walk, mm-hmm. with a desert in between. 
Um, and Border Patrol would be there all the time. So a lot of the times, my brother and I would just hide in the desert until the Border Patrol was gone. Oh or God. we'd find, you know, if we could, I we'd go to a neighbor's and wait there until they were gone. So you don't understand. You don't understand what it means. You just do as you're told, and and you understand that that means you're going to be in trouble. You mentioned that you sometimes had to stay with neighbors. Mm-hmm. So. Were they aware of your undocumented status? Were they undocumented themselves? What What was your neighborhood like? No, they weren't undocumented themselves. At least they didn't say so. Um, but in that school, believe it or not, we in that grade, we were the only kids who were like brand new to the country. Okay. You know what I yeah. mean? Like we were, there wasn't a lot of us that didn't speak English. There wasn't a lot of us who we were definitely like the out like the outcasts and the children who were definitely alone in whatever situation we were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that the neighbors were, you know, undocumented, although I, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. They knew that we were undocumented because we as children told them okay you know? okay maybe not that we're undocumented but like we're not supposed to be seen by la migra or we're scared and therefore they would take care of us okay mm-hmm. and what made you start organizing you said you self-identify as a community organizer so what made you want to devote your life to that oh man that's a really good question and it's a question that the more i think about it the deeper it kind of the, the deeper it goes, my story is that uh, I've lived a life that has had very little privilege, meaning it's been a pretty rough, it's, pretty, it's been a pretty rough life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually a, a teenage mom, so since the age of 15 I've been working and on my own. By the time I graduated high school, I'd been working for years and I was a mom and I was just a child. So for a long time, I was just trying to survive, right? And when you're trying to survive, there is no getting involved politically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just not because mm-hmm. you're you know, homeless or close to being homeless. And I was several times, um, you know, and, and somehow I always, I was, thrifty enough to be able to make ends meet um, and sometimes not Mm -hmm. Um, but it was pretty difficult my brother actually is a big part of the story so my brother who my mom brought over with me my brother and I were like what you would call like Irish twins probably the same as a Mexican twin like we're 11 months apart we're very close in age Mm -hmm. we had the same issues growing up like I had a ton of issues and he had issues the way that people treat issues when you're a girl versus when you're a boy are very different. Yeah. Um, which I think is the conversation that we really need to start having. It's like, sure, I'm brown and indigenous and Mexican, just like my brother, but but I'm a girl and I did get a lot of passes for a lot of my right. Instead of being t- instead of being sent to the principal's office, which I did a lot of times, but and, and say them calling the police on me or, or, or things like that, I would get mentorship instead. Mm-hmm. Whereas my brother would get the opposite because he was a brown boy. Mm-hmm. And in a, you know, he was just always labeled the, uh, a criminal, mm-hmm. even though what my brother needed was a, a therapist. He needed counseling, just mm-hmm. like I did, mm-hmm. right? I don't think we ever recovered from having been separated from our mother and many other things that transpired in our young life and he and I lived the same life he was also a teenage father he also was on his own since a very early age he had a lot of a lot of problems so when he was 18 he'd been in and out of juvie all of his teenage years um, and he got in trouble again right at 18 and he was sent to prison for years at that time, as I mentioned, I was just, you know, surviving and working, and then I graduated high school and then went into um, college, went to Pima, and was working towards transferring to the U of A eventually. Meanwhile, my brother was in prison, and then while I was at the U of A, I started um, kind of paying attention a little bit more about the surroundings, about what was going on politically. Um, my mom and my tia who had just been working their entire lives and 
had just gotten houses, both of them mm-hmm. lost their houses in, during the, the crash of 2008, mm-hmm. to no fault of their own, right? Yeah. Uh, the two people, I mean, we were raised in trailer parks and, and apartments. So things like that, and then being a working parent and a student and being at the U of A and how difficult that was and how like I'd literally have to choose between parking most days and having lunch, right? And then working, uh, homework and work and family life. I mean, it was just super difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my during that time, my brother was did his time. And instead of releasing him, they took him in and sent him to Florence. Mm-hmm. Um, by then, we had papers. Uh, my mother, when we were younger, met someone, married our stepfather, who happened to be a U.S. citizen, and that's how we were able to fix our papers when we were about 13, mm-hmm. 14 years old. But you became citizens? We were only permanent residents. Okay. So um, when my brother was charged then taken in, they took him into Florence to put him into deportation proceedings and he had been kept in solitary confinement he my brother was pretty messed up when he left there and to be put back into another cage was devastating for him Mm -hmm. so basically as you may know what they do I mean you you have to know it's your job right what they do in Florence is you know especially for people like my brother is you know you have two options you stay here for years on end and fight your deportation locked up or you sign this and you're free to go but you're going to Mexico of course my brother chose to go to Mexico so he was deported to a place that he barely knew mm-hmm. um, an American boy completely um, and all of his family actually being here not there anymore I think this is a part of the mm-hmm. immigration system that maybe mm-hmm. people don't know about mm-hmm. is so in the law there's this idea that you can't punish someone twice for the same crime Mm -hmm. like double jeopardy is something that isn't allowed Mm -hmm. but what folks don't realize is that there's a really deep link between the criminal system and the immigration system and so 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 many people serve their time Mm -hmm. for the crime that they did and then are directly brought to an ICE facility Mm-hmm. And I've met a lot of people who are really upset. They're confused because they're like, I did my time already. Why mm-hmm. am I here doing more time? Right. And I I see how the prospect of being caged for even more time forces people to make this kind of impossible choice of taking a deportation. Mm-hmm. And I just, I always point out that it's not because they're not really afraid of returning to their country of origin. It's because being detained, especially in a place like Florence, is just a death of a different kind. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for sharing that about your brother. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. It's it's a lot of punishment, right? Um, Isabel Garcia always talks about that being a social death and that these policies are based on death. So Mm -hmm. he... Yeah, so he took the, the that and, and he left, or well, he had to leave, to a country that he barely knew. At that time, during that exact time, interestingly enough, I was hit by a drunk driver, and I was almost killed. It was a really bad accident, and the guy was charged with all sorts of things, and he was up for doing about 10 years in prison, and was also a migrant. Oh, wow. Um, so I... Like I, I'll basically I'll suffer from chronic pain for the rest of my life. I had full sc- four skull, skull fractures. All of the ribs on my left hand side were crushed. Wow. I don't have a spleen anymore. I have a scar from here to here. I had to, I had some pretty severe deficits, neurological deficits that took forever, and I, I'm still not the same, but. That was, you know, I always think about, like, your question, that's your question, like, when did I start? And it wasn't even, like, I just decided. For example, when I found out that this man was a migrant and that he was going to be deported if he spent more than 365 days in jail Mm -hmm. or if he went to prison, I couldn't even fathom the idea. And I remember... When there was a sentencing going and writing this letter, this long and painful letter, because that crash ruined my life. 
it was the worst thing. So I remember writing this letter and crying the whole time that I was writing it and not understanding. And then the next day going and reading this letter and this man is who did this worst thing to me, he is crying the whole time. And apparently he had all of this you know, remorse for what he'd done and basically wanted to, he had five children. So he was going to be separated from five of his children. And he was from the, some islands off of somewhere in Asia. We, they kept having to reschedule the, the sentencing because they couldn't find an interpreter oh, wow. that knew the language. Yeah. Um, so indigenous from wherever it is that he was from, I can't mm-hmm. remember. And anyway, so I, in my speech, said my truth and then proceeded to beg the judge to keep him only for 365 days to allow him to leave for work and to allow him to stay home with his children Mm -hmm. because I couldn't bear the idea of him having made this one mistake, which super sucked for me, (laughs) but still, I couldn't bear that punishment. It wouldn't have given me any justice to see Mm -hmm. him go to prison and, Mm -hmm. and then deported like, Ugh, I can't even imagine that. Mm-hmm. So that was actually the very first time that I ha- can say that I did something. And then it was after that that everything kind of changed. And I started looking for, you know, just thinking and, 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 and looking into spaces and, and talking about my brother's deportation and also taking back the narrative of being a migrant because... I had been so separated from my culture and my identity because of this 24-7 crisis mode that you're in Mm -hmm. when you're that kind of single working mother, right? And uh, yeah, so that was the very start. And then after that accident, I became a community or community. I didn't know what that word was. I didn't Mm -hmm. even say I'm going to be an organizer. I just started organizing um, and talking about things that were important to me. That's usually how it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then the next thing you know, I'm a community organizer. And um, so that's how I got started. I think your story is really powerful because I think with the justification for harsher sentencing is the victim and reparations for the victim, you know, supposedly reparations for the victim and trying to punish Mm -hmm. proportionally to how much the victim suffered. Mm -hmm. And I think it says so much about you and your values that you could go through such an intense and painful experience that really has permanently changed your life. And you still didn't want that man to be deported. I, I think it's pretty innate in most people. I think our idea of justice has been twisted into something that we know is not right. Yeah. And I think overall, I think that's an awakening that people are having across the world, especially in the United States of America right now, where we have so many people imprisoned for so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 an interesting realization because I've actually just been realizing that lately. That wait a minute. I didn't get started with the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? I got started long before that. Mm -hmm. And you sort of started talking a little bit about the ways in which immigration policy has impacted your life, Mm -hmm. the deportation of your brother, and the separation that you had to endure from your mom. Mm -hmm. How does that inform the organizing work that you do now? It informs it... It, for a long time, it was it was that what we went through and and all of that, but also uh, you know realizing the privilege that I had because I actually just became a citizen last year, and it was after some friends did a fundraiser for me so I can get my citizenship, and it was because some like psychopath Trump people had a whole page that was dedicated to like stalking me and oh my deporting God. me, and it was weird. So people did that you know, as a line of protection, and I finally was, I finally did it, because I never had like 700 bucks lying around mm-hmm. to to actually get it. So I guess where I was going with that is it also was about centering friends and family who aren't that, who don't have that, and learning from them and um, taking a step back. You know, I've had the kind of weird career where I started and then 
I was just in a lot of places and I was given a lot of platforms. Not that I didn't work very hard for them because I have, mm -hmm. but you know, what you do when you're giving platforms is you're supposed to uplift other people. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I really, really strived to do for a long time, I thought. I learned. I learned a lot from organizers, especially who've been doing this for much longer than I have, and from undocumented organizers mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. and just from day-to-day -day people. Because the woke crowd is not the 99% of undocumented folks out there whose, whose values are kind of different when you actually look at it, mm -hmm. what they're trying to do is survive. Um, and so that was my work. Uh, I worked on economic justice, so I worked on the minimum wage campaign of 2016. I was a, I was a Southern Arizona director for that. And after that, went right into organizing on a grassroots level with on immigrants' rights, which I've never done before, so that was a huge learning curve for me too. But recently, I mean, these border policies have shaped my entire life. My, my brother was actually murdered, so um, my brother was executed, murdered in some shitty fucking alleyway back home 10 months ago, so I had to go get him, um, and then the process that you have to go through to bring a body back from Mexico is, is just as demeaning as you can possibly imagine it. You know, you still need a passport when you're dead. So when you're bringing a body back, you have to mark them as cargo instead of human remains. Wow. We basically had to lie to the Mexican police to get his body home. Mm -hmm. um, and he came back in the way that so many of our brothers and fathers and, and sisters who are mm -hmm. deported back to unsafe places, um, the only way that certain people who've been deported can come back is that they, they come back dead. Yeah. And my brother, his number one thing always is he wanted to come back. <laughs> my brother wanted to be with us, um, and he'd talk about it all the time, and he hated being, being there. He hated Mexico. I mean, he loved his home country, but he hated the life that he had there, and we tell them, well, you can't come back, Memo, because if you come back and you get caught, you're going to prison. Mm -hmm. And then if you come back, you're going to have to go through the desert, and then you can die, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's no other way for us to get you back. It's so militarized, we can't get back. Mm -hmm. So those were the two things we tell them. You're going to go to jail or you're going to die. Um, and, you know, little did we know that he was going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. So... So these policies have completely, um, they have made my life and they have basically ruined my life. Mm -hmm. um, they're inhumane to every degree. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked about this a little bit before about how the increased militarization over the past like 10 years has made it so that the only possible places where you can cross the border are places where you can die. Right. I was, the last episode that I recorded, I was talking about the no more deaths convictions mm -hmm. that occurred when people were in the federal refuge, Cabeza Prieta, I think it's mm -hmm. called. Mm -hmm. And I, I always want to shed light on that because I don't think people realize how much folks risk just to be able to come here right. i've heard that that refuge be described as a graveyard because right. of how many people die there right there's hundreds of deaths in the arizona desert every single year hundreds we have thousands so you're you know i mean many perish uh and and, and some do get by but then they get by and it's not like they get a, a welcoming, a, a good welcome, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's pretty, it's a crisis, but a different crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis that's happening. And what I think is, is we need to keep an eye out. What we need to keep on talking about is the fact that this isn't just an issue of now. This is an issue that's going to continue 
to to grow mm -hmm. the num I mean the 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 estimates that there are for displacement of Mexico City area just there alone are over 11 million people being displaced and wow. moving north mm -hmm. by 2050 then when you take in all of the other the countries the Central American countries and the numbers in Mexico and the displacement that's going to happen around global warming by 2050 mm -hmm. we're talking about 50 million people moving mm -hmm. and either they go south or they go north mm -hmm. right likely probably north so what we're seeing at the border is just the beginning of, of what's going to have to be a massive transformation of what we call immigration policy mm -hmm. and what we call borders and how we do it. Mm -hmm. And it, so like we're all really super stuck on the, like the now and Trump. And what we've got to remember is like these walls went, went up, militarization went up. All of these internal repressive pol uh, agencies like DHS, which is just rogue, they don't follow international law. No. They don't follow constitutional law. They don't law. follow their own law. They don't follow law. What they follow is internal policy. Mm -hmm. They follow policy at the whim of whoever the hell is in the executive, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen a massive shift into across the world into this right-wing, fascist, anti-immigrant and it's a reaction to all of the changes in the globalization that's happening mm -hmm. because everything is globalized except people and movement right. that is so we've seen there were seven walls up across the world before 9-11 we're like at 80 right now walls it's the same folks who militarize borders and put up walls at different borders the same it's the united states it's israel mm -hmm. and, and and those types of key players mm -hmm. right the CIA, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but it's true. Like, the government has known for 30 years that this kind of shift was going to happen. They know. They do the studies. They understand. So the militarization of the border and the change in policies didn't just happen just because. There, this is a preemption towards the future, uh, towards what we're seeing now, migrant caravans. Which migrant caravans, what are their response to? crime and organized death, crime right yeah. for it's for safety mm -hmm. it's so that folks get here together and safe i don't think people realize that because i don't think if you haven't had the experience of migrating north you don't know what the routes have become like mm -hmm. because with the militarization of the border there has been like a whole underground economy that has mm -hmm. sprung up of human traffickers of drug traffickers and the the way along to get to the u.s is dangerous for for because you have to encounter those people on your way north and they know that migrants are coming and they take advantage of the fact that they're a very vulnerable population right it's an it's an entire uh industry like you said and 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 then what's crazy is that, like you mentioned earlier, they get through all the worst things that you can possibly imagine, and then they get here, and they're another commodity. Mm -hmm. And they're not a commodity to organized crime. Well, they're a commodity to a different kind of organized crime, right. um, which is private for-profit mm -hmm. prisons mm -hmm. and detention center. Mm -hmm. It's, you know you know when we crossed the border we went over that wall like we got the coyote we went under that wall we went over we got caught so many times but back in those days the worst that happened to us is we had to spend some hours behind in the back of a border patrol truck mm -hmm. they take they just dump us back over to to nogales that doesn't happen anymore right mm -mm. that doesn't happen anymore you know, now, I mean, for a while, and maybe again, it was a zero tolerance policy. Children be ripped from their families. Uh, if you're caught, you know, probably more than likely going to to be charged and, and put through uh, operations don't uh, streamline so that you can fill a for-profit. It's, it's so sad. It's so sad. Um, can you explain what Operation Streamline is for the folks who aren't from the border who don't know what that is? Yeah, so Operation Streamline is a program uh, that has basically been put in place for what seems like no other reason. Of course, they'll say deterrence, but mm -hmm. not really. But for no other reason other than to fill up beds 
four for profit detention centers. Mm -hmm. So we have one here in Tucson. I think we were the first Operation Streamline Corps ever. Mm -hmm. I think there's one in uh, San Diego. There's one in San Diego. Yeah, yeah. and is there another one in Texas? I don't know. Not that many. I know that they're planning on expanding it. And right. that San Diego is a kind of more recent expansion. Right. Which is scary. So migrants are basically pulled in there 70 or more before shackled together in chains and basically sentenced in mass without proper representation. Mm -hmm. um, and then sent off to fill these these beds. Horrific stories of people that are in there for for little things like you know just living their life and being undocumented and being pulled over for something like a broken taillight mm -hmm. and then those that crossed over and were separated from their family or just happened to get chosen to to be put into the operation streamline proceedings um it's quite it's quite shocking when you go see it yeah um, now if anybody hasn't gone you can go Mm -hmm. This Monday through Friday, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you can just sit I actually there haven't gone yet. And watch, yeah, yeah. and just sit there and watch. Um, and like I said, they're not shackled anymore, but it's still pretty intense. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it is very intense because um, you know supposedly every individual has the right to a jury trial mm -hmm. if they're being charged criminally, and it's. I think. Coming here to Southern Arizona, I used to live in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I have really come to see how the justice system is like a play. It's like a show because, you know, on the one hand, supposedly the Constitution says that everybody has a right to a jury trial. Mm -hmm. And then there's Operation Streamline where they just sentence 70 people at the same time to make it faster and easier for the judges. And there's technically a federal defender there who's defending them, but everybody takes a plea mm -hmm. and everybody takes a plea at the same time and and like you said that's why it's really shocking right because you you think that the right to a jury trial will mean that your agency is respected and people are just treated kind of like commodities like mm -hmm. you said just a group of people that will create profit for whatever prison they're going to um, and I want to highlight the fact that people are commodities within detention centers because I, I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but the way that detention centers make money is that the people who are detained work for the detention center and do a lot of the jobs that like you would expect the detention center to provide mm -hmm. uh, kitchen staff, clean uh, people who clean, um, people who like, like till the dirt outside. Um, I've just I've seen people detained doing the things that you would expect core civic to have staff doing. You know, if if supposedly they're providing shelter and food for people, you would think that the core civic staff are the ones doing that, mm -hmm. but they're not. And people detained are paid a dollar a day, mm -hmm. which is like obviously inhumane and should be illegal. But also, it's not enough mm -hmm. to. Uh, help them like they the one dollar isn't even enough to buy yourself like a bag of chips in the commissary i don't know it, i i it was counterintuitive to me that prison and detention could be a profit making thing because i was like well like how does that end up making money when you need to pay your staff and but what that's why conditions are so terrible because they provide the bare 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 minimum of everything and have people detained doing a lot of the core functions of the detention center. Right. And that's just like capitalism 101, right? Is they will, they're, it's finding markets where you'd never think would be a market. Right. Commodifying every part of human existence, mm -hmm. even the worst part of human existence, which is detention. Yeah. Um, and death and dreams and like everything you can think of like we are just like ev our entire existence right now is basically commodified mm -hmm. when you actually think about it i mean you can't drive down the street without looking at a uh an ad mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um you can't look through your phone you can't do anything you can't really go anywhere without having to pay for something right so yeah it's 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 exactly that. It's the it's the golden rule of capitalism. It's finding finding markets where there are none. And the same thing goes for schools, charter schools, for profit schools, for profit colleges. There's another weird one, right? Or healthcare. 
why in the world would any hospital be for profit or mm -hmm. you know insurance companies um, being for profit like there are certain areas where for profit should not be a thing and detention is definitely one of them just like healthcare just like education and and many other institutions out there that weren't like that before mm -hmm. there's something you said that i wanted to go back to about mm -hmm. how it took you a bit of time to become political because of the fact that you were just surviving every day. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that I think a lot of migrants aren't necessarily, like 99% of migrants aren't a part of the woke crowd because mm -hmm. they are also just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And so how do we reconcile the fact that those are the folks directly impacted by these immigration policies but at the same time, it can be very hard to organize those folks because of the fact that they're just surviving. How, how do you reconcile that tension in your work? Uh, that's something that I'm figuring out. <laughs> of course, um, of course. It's a really you, difficult question. Yeah, but it's a real question. And it's a question that I like to bring up and a lot of people don't like it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it makes people feel uncomfortable because they have to analyze their own privilege and the fact that they're able to be in the space in the first privilege. place. It's privilege. It's like if, if you, yes, if you're in a space, you have privilege. End of story. Mm -hmm. End of story. And, and, and also, I, like I've asked this question before, like how do we, I've been organizing on a grassroots level around migrants' rights for a while. Mm -hmm. In some of the conversations that I've had or meetings that I've been to or panels that I've been to, I literally ask myself, what have we accomplished here? Who have we helped and who is liberated because of this? Mm -hmm. Because some of these conversations that we have within these radical sectors are just so much about the minutia and the conversation and the theory of this and that. And then they call themselves inclusive, but they're the most exclusive things ever. Mm -hmm. Right? Because normal day-to-day -day working people... Uh, a mother who's undocumented who who works at McDonald's and doesn't know how to use you know the correct terms might say the wrong word mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we exclude people like that from spaces they yeah. are not welcome yeah they're not so like I, I see these like ultra ultra inclusionary things but like what about the rest of the people who aren't woke or don't know, who can't understand? I mean, if I went to them and I wanted to be like, yo, let's talk about, um, what was the term I heard? Pigmentocracy. <laughs> hey, mom, that's barely getting by. Let's talk about your privilege at, you know, in pigmentocracy. Mm -hmm. So it's always about like how do we make sure that us as the activists or the people in these spaces that are supposed to be representing folks out there, how do we not betray that work? Mm -hmm. So that's a really important one for me and I'm not very popular when I call it out and I'll tell you that. But I'm more about rather than making it smaller, how do we bring people in and how do we keep them in? Mm -hmm. um, how can we start organizing the sector that's out there who is not undocumented and afraid, unafraid, who, who can't, who doesn't trust to be with us, who look at us and go, oh, there's no way I could be in that. I don't understand that mm -hmm. or, or I'm this or I'm that. I've seen it. Mm -hmm. I've seen people show up to a meeting and never come back again because mm -hmm. people are rude to them or they said something that was problematic or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a difficult one for me in the work that I do. What we're focusing on is always keeping these intersectional issues that we're talking about, keeping them understandable for people, talking about issues that matter to all of us, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, working, uh, living wage, protection from deportation, not being pulled over and being sent over to ICE or Border Patrol, your kids having health care, your kids being able to get to school, you providing for your family, the day-to-day -day bread and butter issues that, that matter to most of us and that we all can relate to, mm -hmm. the universal issues. And so 
I'd like to always, you know, when I'm talking about immigration, I always want to bring up labor. Yes. Always. Labor, labor, labor. And it has to go connected all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about immigration, we're talking about women's rights. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's been a real, yeah, that's, it's tricky. It's super tricky. I think we, we still have a lot to learn because like a lot of people don't know how to like reach out. It, we, we just, we fail at it because it is the, the, the name of it. If, if people are undocumented and they're living in the shadows, quote unquote, right? Like how do you catch them and how do you get them in? And how do you bring them in? Mm -hmm. It's tricky. But, but it can be done. Like, for example, like I remember I was at a panel a year ago or something for Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood had gotten all of this money after the Trump administration, right? Mm -hmm. And they started hiring, hiring a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And I remember this person who was there was talking about all these amazing programs. And then she was talking about how, like, you don't need papers. You don't need to show us this. You don't need to show us that for Planned Parenthood to service you. And then my question was, like, okay, but... What's the outreach to the undocumented right. community? Right. How are they going to know that? Oh, well, uh, we had a, you know, program called this that organized these, and it just didn't work out. And mm -hmm. that program has failed. Because I remember being a kid, and I never saw a fucking doctor until I got papers, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Because we didn't know anything about it real. My mom didn't know no. nothing about nothing. You know, I didn't even know there was a university in this city until I was a teenager mm -hmm. because we only drove when we had to mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. we stayed in that one quarter mile radius always mm -hmm. I mean like I, it's it's so tough I don't have the answers except that I'm trying to make it broad and understandable and when I talk and when I give speeches and when I write I'm trying to make it understandable for everybody mm -hmm. um, and I think it works Something I've been reflecting on is how in radical circles there can be an attitude that causes people to treat others like they're disposable. And when you were talking about how uh, folks don't come back because they used the wrong word or they said something that was problematic, I think that that's really important to this question of how do we actually keep people who are most directly impacted coming back to these organizing spaces? And I think it's really important to to not treat, not reproduce the logic of the prison system and say, oh, you did one thing wrong, well, now you're out. Mm -hmm. um, and I know it's like, it's easier said than done. And, and people also need to be able to draw healthy boundaries and all that. Mm -hmm. But I don't, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's the name of the game, right? It's called the struggle. Mm -hmm. Not the struggle because it's difficult when we're pushing against the other people. The struggle is because we're supposed to meet our people where they're at. Mm -hmm. And why struggle? We struggle with them mm -hmm. to move them and to move each other and to move ourselves to a point where we can liberate each other to together mm -hmm. that's the, the struggle doesn't in, doesn't in my opinion the struggle is with our own that's the struggle mm -hmm. the struggle is building consensus mm -hmm. meeting groups the struggle is if somebody did something bad in your space hurt someone said something bad and i know that people will disagree you're supposed to work at it yeah in a in a democratic way mm -hmm. you're supposed to talk about it and if it you know and then draw boundaries and if that doesn't work then then you go over to the next step but i'm not a fan of cancellations exactly yes um, i think that's it's what i'm saying right it's become so toxic it's become so toxic and so reactionary mm -hmm. that that you not only hurt the people around you who are already full of trauma, you hurt you hurt yourself in the process and then you hurt the movement um, altogether when you do something like that and then the and then the people on the sidelines. Because what it is is it's either black or white. Right. You're either with me or you're with them. Mm -hmm. You're on this side or you're not. And then what happens is good people on the sidelines have to make choices mm -hmm. and it just reproduces that there are people out there who are asking for accountability of everything yet they're accountable to no one 
and, oh and my they're god that's so relevant to my life right now of, yeah just because of of you know identity or 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 whatever it may be yeah, it's something that i had to learn that was really tough for me to learn because a lot of it it's a lesson and i what i hope is that like it's just like part of the process of us bettering this and and we're going through this thing where i mean i feel like everybody feels that way a lot of people are feeling really like these spaces are supposed to uplift you and and make you feel safe and keep you and walk you through away from the other abusive spaces and and all of those other spaces that have told you that you're not good enough your Mm -hmm, whole life mm And it's become the same, if not worse. And that makes me really sad. And it's it's a shame. Yeah. But I think when we talk about like the struggle, the struggle is with our with our own, and, and, and that's what the struggle is. You you don't organize the other side. You organize your people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And building consensus and solidarity and and you know speaking in their terms. Like Edward, for example, my partner, like. Well, I'm sure you know, but like he cracks me up sometimes because he'll like go off on a tangent and I'm like, or he'll write something and I'm like, who's supposed to understand that? <laughs> you know what I mean? I understand it, but you have to read a book. You have to read all kinds of like leftist philosophy to know this stuff. Yeah. Say it in ways that people will understand it. What if we change it to this? What if we change it to that? And it's just a funny like... You know, that's one well-meaning example of, like, you talk to people the way that they talk. You you, you go and meet them where they're at. Um, yeah. And that's a big um, part of the work that we're doing right now with the Sanctuary City Initiative is very much, like, trying to do it differently than it's ever been done and going to the community where they're at. And it may work and it may not work. I'm not sure. But we're going to try to do it that way. I struggled with that too, I think because I internalized a lot of what was said to me within the education system that like, yeah, just like using, you know, like knowing all the leftist theorists and like using certain vocabulary will make you sound smart and will make you sound important and will make it sound like your ideas are important. Mm -hmm. And I took a class with Kathleen Cleaver, who is a former Black Panther, and she, she would go in on my writing and she'd be like, what are you even saying here? (laughs) And it was so useful because it's like, yeah, what am I saying here? You know, it's like, I think truth should be simple. And if we are speaking truth to power, then we need to say that in a way that is understandable. Accessible, right? Mm -hmm. Accessible to people. Yeah. Okay, well, it's 7.40, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So is there anything that you want to end the podcast talking about? Any last words? Anything you feel like we should have talked about if we're talking about Tucson and organizing and immigration? Well, I did kind of touch a little bit on it, but if your listeners want to check out our Sanctuary City initiative that we're working on. Mm -hmm. So um, I... I am with People's Defense Initiative, a little confusing, but People's Defense Initiative is the political action committee that I founded and that I'm director of um, a year ago Mm -hmm. to do exactly as we're doing right now, which is fill a hole that had been empty in Tucson for a bit or maybe forever, Mm -hmm. be that kind of group that takes those amazing grassroots movements and wants and demands that we have on the ground Mm -hmm. and take them into the electoral space Mm -hmm. to build lasting political power whatever that may look like and build an infrastructure and build some build our own Mm -hmm. we decided to um do the sanctuary city initiative which actually is modeled in part by frankie's bill in flagstaff frankie was an undocumented young man much like my brother who was pulled over and because of SB 1070 was
access since the age of five. He was deported and then he died by suicide. He was deported away from the rest of his family. So much in the same story of my brother where the country that you're at just throws you away like you're a piece of trash. Mm -hmm. And then the country that you're sent to that's supposed to be your home also doesn't want you. Mm -hmm. Pushing this in Flagstaff and I thought, what the hell, we can do it down here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so they've changed the name of Frankie's Bills. It's now called Keep Families Free and Together. That's in Flagstaff. They're actually pushing it through the city. So they're not doing an initiative. For us, we were like, all right, what's our option? We can take it to the city, demand it. We've been demanding sanctuary city policies for a long time. Mm -hmm. We've been demanding that. We've been hitting the streets, and we've got no answer. We're quote-unquote immigrant-friendly, which is just a bunch of trash. <laughs> Choose on immigrant-friendly. That's immigrant funny. Immigrant-friendly. <laughs> immigrant-friendly, which, you know, what makes us unique is SB 1070, right? So we wrote, when we looked at Tucson and we said, what are the issues? Poverty, high poverty, 25%. Unemployment, 23%. Mass criminalization, super high. And of course, immigration. We're, we're in Tucson. This was uh, Mexico before, and before it was Mexico, it was indigenous mm -hmm. territory, right? Our families have been here for a long time, way before anything was any. And this is the birthplace of the what we know as the sanctuary movement. So, and, you know, we're, we're a pretty progressive city. So those three things, we decided how do we address them and we said let's take this bill. We took Frankie's bill and we added a ton of things to it. We made it super strong. We have protections in there against being pulled over for window tinting. Mm -hmm. uh, we have protections in there to protect undocum undocumented victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. We have protections in there so that if you are a victim and you do call the police, they're going to have to give you that certification so that you can apply for a U visa. Oh, I love that. We ha we it's have, amazing. We have seven. Also, that they're going to have to read you your rights. If they are asking you about your, your immigration status, they're going to have to read you your Miranda rights. And if you, by any reason, do tell them your immigration status, you're going to have to sign something that says, I knew and I was read my immigration rights. Mm -hmm. They will no longer be able to keep you for long periods of time. So as soon as the... the the thing is, oh, the the, the, traffic, the traffic is, is written. over, they have to tell you to leave. Mm -hmm. 17 new protections in there that would create, make Tucson not just a sanctuary city, but a place where there's less arrest, a place where people are have, have being there, read their rights, a place where the police are really going to have to think twice before they racially profile you. Um, for example, Amen to that. Right, the immigrant-friendly orders right now say, of course, you can't use race, right? Mm -hmm. But you can use race proxies, like no, yeah, clothing, you, you neighborhood, English, clothing. My favorite, car load. What do you mean? Car load, like that's basically just car speak, just code speak for too many Mexicans in a car. Oh wow! Right? Oh wow! Car load. Mm -hmm. So TPD right now, their immigrant-friendly general orders say if your car load is a certain type of load, I can start asking you for your immigration status. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, look into that. So it's People's Defense Initiative, but the initiative is called Tucson Families Free and Together. Mm -hmm. We are on Facebook. We have a great website. Um, we're in the middle of collecting signatures to get on the ballot, mm -hmm. and it would be on the ballot for the 2019 November election in Ooh, Tucson. That's exciting. Yeah. Hopefully cool. we get there. Yeah, and then we can put links to the website and to the petition okay, um, up on our website when the episode goes up. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, well, thank you so much, Saida. This was a really insightful interview, and I really appreciate you sharing your story with the Radio Cachimbona listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye.